0: Welcome to episode 588 with my guest, Dr. Kenneth Adams. Super excited that I got to talk to him. I've mentioned his book a thousand times on this podcast. Uh, The book is called Silently Seduced, and he's the guy that coined the term uh, covert incest. Um, Yeah, I know you guys are going to like this episode. Well, I think you'll like it. Am Am I putting all my chips in one basket? What if you don't like it? Will I I be able to rebound from this? I don't know. Uh, My name is Paul... God, why do I mention my name? It says it right there on the title of the podcast. Maybe I just want to be sure. We're off the rails, 45 seconds in. This is the Metal Illness Happy Hour, and the website for this show is metalpod.com. Metal Pod also the social media, handles it. You can follow us at, uh, like to mention up front, I'm not a therapist, um, a former stand-up comedian. Well, I still do stand-up every once in a while. Former TV host, Jackass, the cooked chicken on basic cable. But I feel like i got some stuff to say. That's why I started this podcast. Um, let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself green with envy. And she writes, uh, hey, Paul, just wondering what you do about jealousy let me briefly explain my situation. My best friend is the one true person I can count on. She's been there for me through the roughest times in my life and I just don't know what I'd do without her. She literally saved my life when I was suicidal. She's the only person I feel that truly gets me and is there always. Well, she has more than just me. She helps and there is she helps and is there for so many people. She has a lot of close friends, and I feel like she doesn't want to be there as much for me anymore. I love her to pieces and would do anything for her, but I get this deep jealousy in my gut when she makes it known how much she's there for others or chooses someone else over me for whatever reason. I know it's in my head, and I shouldn't feel like that, but I end up hurting my own feelings when she isn't there like she used to be. I have other friends too, but they haven't helped me like she has. I feel like she's my number one person, and I know I'm not her number one. She has so many people to confide in, and I'm on the back burner, it feels like. So how do you deal with jealousy? Am I a terrible person? Maybe I'm just too clingy and needy, but I don't know how to make these feelings go away. Thanks for everything you do. Great questions, and thank you for... uh, For sharing about that stuff, it's, it's, um, I think it can be really hard to, um, express that, that vulnerability when we feel like somebody's not showing up for us that, that we want. And, you know, I, I don't know if there's a right or a wrong here, there's just a chemistry between people and you feel what you feel. There's no right or wrong feelings. There's just healthy and unhealthy ways of expressing those feelings. And is it having a conversation with her, asking, "Is there, am I draining you? Is there something wrong here? Is it letting it go? Is it expanding your friend network? I, I don't know the answer to any of those uh, questions, or I think those are just I think this is a situation where you need to ask yourself more questions. And um, I don't think it would hurt to expand your support network because it's possible that that you are um, uh, expecting more of her time and energy than she has to give. And that isn't a reflection on you as a person. Um, it's just that sometimes people's batteries uh, get drained. That might not be the case. It might all be in your head, but um, jealousy is is not something that I, I feel a lot of negative emotions, but jealousy is not a common one for me because I like to take all of that energy that could go to jealousy and funnel it into self-loathing. Um, it, I just find it to be much more efficient at working me up into a nap at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But thank you for your... Thank you for your survey, and I hope that uh, I hope that gives you something to think about. This is an awful moment filled out by Connor, and he writes, This week I was seeing one of my college's free counselors. Uh, I've been seeing them for about six months, and we've been getting into a lot of heavy stuff. This week he asked me the dreaded questions: the question, What are your thoughts on medication? I say, It's been very beneficial for my peers and family members, and I think it is the next step as I deal with very persistent anxiety. He looks at me and says, I don't believe in medication, but it's worth a shot for you. And then I wanted to read this one. Right after it, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Swamp Witch. And she writes, "Uh, I'm a new listener. I wanted to ask if you know of or have interviewed anyone who has had the lamictal rash, also called Stevens-Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, or TENS. Uh, Lamictal, for those of you that don't know, is a uh, psych medication. And I believe it's it uh, is primarily used as an antipsychotic. Um, I take it not for that, but it can be used as an adjunct uh, to SSRIs to uh, help them to uh, perform better, be more efficient, uh, especially for people with childhood trauma. That's what my psychiatrist said, and I rolled my eyes and said, "What do you fucking know?" Um, continuing the survey, um, and it nearly killed me. Uh, I spent 32 days in a burn ICU as the rash became huge, raw, open wounds all over and inside me. From what I understand, I had a very severe case. It was gruesome and traumatizing. My body, life, and family will never be the same. It was fucking insane. I feel like it should be said. I'd never want to scare someone away from a medication that could help them. Lamictal remains a godsend for so many people. It's just that this has been a very isolating experience for me. I don't know anyone who has had this or anything like it. The whole thing set back my diagnosis two and a half years. The reaction took place in late 2019 and I was diagnosed bipolar 2 just two weeks ago. I'm on a baby dose of Seroquel now and I'm diligent with my meds and I do feel better already. The act of taking the pills terrifies me every time. It was this huge thing in my life and it can be really hard to relate to anyone. When I talk about even a small part of the story, people just turn white. was just wondering if you knew of any other survivors I could possibly connect with. Anyone with a story like mine where their body rejected a psychiatric treatment in a life-threatening way so they can never fully trust their body or their medications ever again. I am not aware of anybody, but anybody listening, um, contact me through the website if you relate to her. And uh, Swamp Witch uh, also contact me through the website so that I have your email in the event somebody does want to connect with you. And you can also connect via the forum. Um, There's a lot of topics and uh, different threads, but um, I would like to put you in touch with somebody um, if there is somebody. I had a, it wasn't a rash, but I had a negative reaction to Abilify about, I don't know, maybe six years ago that was, the first month of it was fantastic. It was uh, like manageable hypomania. You know, buying buying a new guitar, playing music seven hours a day, just burst of creativity, and then like a switch flipping off, it turned into just total anxiety, insomnia, and suicidal ideation. And it lasted about two months. And when I started posting online asking if anybody else had had that, a shitload of people said that they had had a similar reaction to Abilify. Um, I know that's not as serious as as getting burns, but um, it fucking blows when... (laughs) Not only does a medication not work for you, but you feel like it puts you even deeper in the hole than you were before you started. I, I take medication. I don't like that I take medication. I don't feel like it's cheating, uh, but I don't trust drug companies. And I wish natural medicines worked for me, but the ones that I've tried haven't been enough to deal with my, as my psychiatrist calls it, treatment-resistant depression. Anyway, uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by, is this anonymous enough? And uh, he writes, I had undiagnosed depression and anxiety for years before, before I finally went in. Thus, talking to others has always been difficult. Anyway, my mother called me in my dorm and asked how things were going. I told her just fine. Well, she saw right through that and hammered it into me that if people ask me, they want to know. It's not bad to talk to people. Great sentiment, right? Fast forward to later that evening. I was working for the university service where we walked people home so they felt safe. On the way to our next subject, my co-escort, and we've always had one male and one female, who was a good friend at the time, or so I thought, asked how I was doing. Listening to my mom, I decided to be open about my struggles. I made it into about halfway through the second sentence when she interrupted me with, when someone asks how you're doing, they don't want to hear about your shit. Just say fine. (laughs) That is fantastic. We are sponsored uh, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I have been using BetterHelp for years, for years. I love doing online therapy. I'm a fan of, of BetterHelp in particular. Um, I find their counselors to be um, high quality, easy to talk to. Um, obviously, uh, there's tons of different counselors, and the chemistry between a client and a counselor is unique. Um, but I, I am... I'm sold. I love not having to leave my living room. Uh, my counselor, Heidi helps me out with stress. Um, uh, stress. I think a lot of us don't even realize sometimes how stressed out we are until we start talking about it. And that's, that's one of the things that I like about therapy because I never look forward to therapy. I'm always like, Oh, I got fucking therapy at two o'clock, but I always feel better after I do it. And, um, it's, it's, um, if I don't, if i don't talk about what's going on with me i am never going to realize what my stress level is but anyway BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapists so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to it's much more affordable than in-person therapy give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress and you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. Pulitzer Prize finalist and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Harv Davidson. And uh, she writes, um, and I'm just. Uh, Skipping around in this, because um, there's a there's a bunch of things in here. Uh, one day in March of my freshman year of high school, I'm walking out of the train station and I see my cousin's Pontiac. As I'm walking over to it, I see it's my mother in the driver's seat. I get into the car and ask her why she's borrowing Ronnie's car. My mother very very quietly responds, "Ronnie killed himself. Pop gave us the car." And I respond, "What?" And my mother proceeds to tell me that yesterday morning they found my cousin in the parking lot of their auto shop having taped his exhaust into his car. We hadn't even started driving away from the station yet when I realized he had killed himself in the car my mom was now driving me in. I jumped out and refused to get in again. Uh, And then fast forward to... Uh, the last time I ever heard my cousin's name mentioned was years later when my father let slip that my cousin had left a note that read, all I wanted was to be a rock star. My father said, what a stupid fucking thing to say. Uh, Fast forward to the next awful, awfulsome moment. My dad tried to pour the boiling water out when he was making seafood. He grabbed it while it was hot, leaning to the boiling water going all over his foot. He did not go to the doctor. He did not go to the hospital. Um, he was drinking every night and taking painkillers for his foot, but would not go to the hospital. The weekend comes around again, and my dad is absolutely delirious, won't get out of bed, sweating profusely. We end up having to call an ambulance because he is no longer coherent enough to respond. He gets admitted to the ER with staph infection. Not a day later, my dad is in a coma. The staff has turned to spinal meningitis. Fast forward. I come home from school on the ninth day of my dad being in in a coma from the stupidest injury imaginable and my house was actively on fire. Can I tell you at 15 and now at 30, I laugh. I just cackled. At that point, I stopped feeling sorry for myself or anyone else or asking how this could be worse. It was insane and random and I, like a lot of things in my life, had absolutely zero control in it. Yet, I was still standing there, Having a firefighter tell me my hairspray bottles sounded like tiny explosions. Apparently, there was an electrical fire and it swallowed the entire house. My dad did eventually wake up and had to be told our house burned down. I was the one that told him his dentures were in the house. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. (laughs) And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Adams, who uh, I have wanted to interview for a a very long time. Your, Your book, Silently Seduced, changed my life. Oh. Uh, I have recommended that book to so many people, and every person that I recommend that to that reads it, their their mind is blown because they finally have language to describe what they experienced as a child. So I want to thank you first of all for the work that you do. Um,
1: thank you. Well, you're welcome. <clears throat>
0: talk uh, about the book uh, silently seduced for uh, you coined the term covert incest um how would you describe uh, covert incest
1: yeah so that's that's a good place for us to start and uh, you know i've heard this story a number of times uh, since the book was published in 1991 you know a self-help book has about a 6 month shelf life typically unless it's a real hot seller and every once in a while, you get a book that has kind of a, a niche market like Silently Seduced. And so it's been selling since 1991. That's because when people read it, who uh, describes them, it has the kind of reaction you're talking about. is oh, my God, somebody's opened the door to a story that I didn't know I had and I didn't dare tell anybody. And what it describes, what I had been seeing um, when I first started my practice, I was working with adults who were growing up in alcoholic families. And and we began to notice that some of them had these relationships with parents that were too close. And they also had uh, addictive issues, primarily sexual, some food. And that there was a link between these patterns of compulsivity and these close relationships with parents. And so, I I began to take a look at that and um, start to uh, examine the relationship between um, a parent's relationship with a child where because of a lonely marriage or other reasons turns to the child to uh, support them almost like a surrogate husband or wife, right? in which they now become the loyal lover to the parent in the absence of that parent feeling fulfilled in a relationship with some an adult. And
0: you mean lover figuratively, even though, obviously, occasionally it does cross into the actual yeah. physical um, issues. And, and, and many times there can be uh, both. The emotional, and then the the boundaries crossed that are kind of under the radar, which is which is what I experienced. And
1: mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh,
0: and I imagine you've come across because this is a pattern that I noticed uh, when I began to befriend other people who had similar relationships, uh, especially with their mothers, was that the mothers used access to their children's bodies under their caring for the child to cross boundaries that Mm -hmm. the child at the time might've felt something was off, but they didn't know, because I think in our society, we often say, well, a mom wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Moms don't do that. Um, before you talk about the book in general, talk, talk about that in particular, the dynamic um, with, with mothers and their children.
1: Well, you know, so you, what you just described, we would put into the category of overt sexual abuse. When a, a parent, in this case a mother, violates um, a child's body, plays with their penis, puts an enema just because they can uh, in their rectum and starts to feel the, the power of being mm-hmm. able to cross a boundary, which is what we see with offenders. Um, so silently seduced really didn't describe that, which is what made silently seduced the book and covert incest sort of its own marker was I was trying to describe the group of parents who didn't cross that boundary, but nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Created an atmosphere that crossed boundaries on another level, certainly we see in some cases exactly what you're talking about where um, the parent crosses a boundary in those cases, high degrees of narcissism in the parents, uh, high degrees of entitlement, low empathy for the child, and the child is an extension of their demands and wishes and um, and that's uh, and sometimes we have profiles of just overt offenders, you know, where there's just an absence of empathy and they use the child because they can. And, and, and- But silently <laughs> seduced really described a separate a separate marker. Right. Well, marker. I
0: I had always kind of filed what happened to me under covert abuse. But one of the things that my mom did was she took my temperature rectally until I was eight years old and asked her, why were we still doing it this way? Mm-hmm. And I had always had a feeling that there was some hidden motive in what she was doing, but I would I would push it out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I would imagine you see this with a lot of people who are survivors, is you don't want to face the terrible fact that- what happened to you might be as serious as you fear it might be, and so we explain it away, whether it's to protect the abuser or uh, to minimize the pain of of the truth
1: absolutely what you just described, and i'm sorry that happened to you because it hit me when you said that 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 feels like a need to control you. <laughs> and I don't know if that's true and I don't want to trespass on your your space, but that's a fairly common dynamic in parents who offend is the need to control either they feel helpless because of an out-of-control situation that they're living in. Say their husband is out acting out sexually, and they can't control him having affairs, so they'll control their little boy. And they'll do that through violating the boundary, taking temperatures rectally, playing with the penis, cleaning or washing the penis when they shouldn't be, and so on and so forth at different ages. So control, the need to dominate the boy, is really the issue there that we see and um, certainly the intrusion into the body is its own violation. I probably don't need to tell you that, but also the experience of being dominated has a heavy load that burdens that that boy or girl uh, later in life too, right? Then they become defensive or avoidant in relationships because they don't want to get dominated again, or they reenact that by getting involved with people who are dominant sexually or otherwise to play out the painful reencounter. So we can see those early experiences kind of imprint in the sexuality, in the relationship template, the sort of love template, if you will, that we all have, right? The download. So all that stuff gets downloaded in the erotic, romantic, and, um, intimacy template that we all carry, you know? Yeah.
0: And, and, sex until I really started to do some deep work in support groups around intimacy, Um, I was a a love avoidant, uh, a, a serial cheater, an objectifier. And I had always just thought, well, I was just born dirty. I was just born a pervert. And it wasn't until I did work in support groups that I saw, oh, there's a relationship between what happened to me as a child and how I viewed women. And as I began to give weight to what had happened to me as a child, lo and behold, I discovered I wasn't as afraid of allowing women to get close to me.
1: Mm, That's great. Well, you know, that's a hopeful message, isn't it, for people that therapy, insight, support, facing the truth works. There's a payoff, right? And but you started talking about that earlier about hiding from yourself these painful truths. And uh, the reality is, and of course, we live in a culture where we're reinforced for hiding from painful truths and ignoring things and staying unreflective. I mean, some of that's changing, but it's still pretty prevalent, right? Just go off and drink and do drugs, right? That's the answer, which I'm not saying it is, but that's the message we're given, right? But you're, you're, you're reporting in a personal vignette here really the advantage of going in and being reflective, that you, you get your territory back. You can't change the reality of what happened to you, but you can change the way you organize emotionally around those events. And you can get access to some freedom and and good for you. And that's a nice message to send people so that they don't feel despaired around that.
0: Well, your book was a huge, huge part of that. I remember just reading the back cover of your book and laughing out loud because I thought, this is my story. My my mom used me as her therapist at seven, breaking down and sobbing about her awful marriage and how she wanted to leave all of us because we were selfish bastards. And and I remember mm-hmm. thinking it is up to me to keep her happy.
1: Well, there's the loyal lover. So you asked me earlier what I meant by the loyal lover and you said you mean that symbolically and I said yes but you just described the loyal lover mommy I will never leave you I was always be the good boy and I will absorb your assaults you know so she's putting you in the category of your father or her father right now all of her boys or or the men in her life the males become bad right there's the shaming by the way and we see that a lot we see that in this case, mothers and sons, you're talking about where if the mother has been uh, abused by her father and or her husband or, or, or uh, betrayed, she may displace that anger onto this one of the sons. Usually it's the sensitive, empathic boy or girl in the family in this case. So I'm guessing that you were a pretty sensitive soul and still are probably. I don't know you. I just met you, of course, <clears throat> but usually the sensitive kid in the family gets this. Mm-hmm. They absorb it, they want to please Mommy, they want to help her, and then she takes advantage of it and dumps on him yeah and and that becomes then absorbed into the personality of the young boy, who then, as you say, takes away a sense of shame. you can use the word dirtiness, right mm-hmm. it's somehow you were a bad egg, and boy what a what a burden, what a burden and and yet there's
0: also this pride as a child that you are you know, a quote unquote adult that you're being blessed with these deep conversations and the trust of this parent. And you don't realize at the time that it's robbing you of identifying your
1: needs and just being a, a kid. Of course we call that the golden boy syndrome. Right. And, and so we, and I run these workshops now, uh, here for a number of years, helping men and women uh, disentangle these contracts of loyalty and obligation based on guilt to their mothers or fathers. And um, so uh, what we see uh, in that group is um, uh, a growing sense that they, um, you know, they were placed in the in the role of having to be there for them and we often assume the parents holding on too tight which is what the covert incest label and the selling seduce was about right but in fact sometimes the boy who now is a man he doesn't want to let go he doesn't want to both be an emancipated full man and give up his golden boy status but the truth is in order to be an emancipated man, you got to let go of being the golden boy to your mother. And that's, that's the tricky part. Uh, that, that, that is an understatement.
0: It was the most, <laughs> the most painful divorce I've ever Absolutely. experienced in my life. And I think for a lot of people that stop being the golden child is there is this fear, this existential fear that that parent will die, without you playing the role that you had been playing.
1: Well, you know, and you, you're you probably speaking to a burden of being um, saddled with, with feelings and needs that you shouldn't have been saddled with, right? That in a way, it felt like life and death for her that you were by her side, right? Mm-hmm. And that part of your... Uh, elevated status. What you kept her alive, right? In your fantasy, in your in the little boy's um, own narcissistic world and delusion of grandeur, that he saved this woman, right? Mm-hmm. And now he's her savior, and and unfortunately, it's supposed to be the other way around, right? The mother supposed and the father is supposed to have the son and daughters back. And while we certainly want to be able to love our parents and and have a new relationship with them in adulthood. Um, the the parents are supposed to be the ones adjusting to the loss of the children and not demanding that the children adjust to them in the loss yeah I have a I have a son who's in college now and you know I can feel this sort of separation and this these these you know separation occurs over over a course of development for a child adolescent young young adult right and the job of the parent is to adjust and to stay flexible and to let go and to support the emancipation it is not up to the young adults It is not the young adults job to cushion the blow of the parents loss so yes when you have when you have to divorce that contract and and there is in in the other side of the of the divorce doesn't agree with you it's a painful it's yeah. a painful encounter
0: talk if you would, about the silent spouse. Uh, My father was a a closet alcoholic, and I've really had trouble feeling any kind of real rage towards him for Mm -hmm. just either standing by, not noticing what was happening. Uh, And I wonder if there was a part of me that totally understood him not wanting to be around this woman, to not be present uh, to her diatribes and her uh, neediness. And that's not to say that my mom was a terrible person or there weren't great things about her.
1: Sure. Well, you know, I'm going to take you on your word that part of this is that you're uh, in, in some ways you and your father are, Uh, co-survivors of this woman, and that you may indeed have a certain empathy uh, for his positioning. The trouble is, is that it might be that um, you may have not lectured, and I don't, again, I want to be careful here, you know, I don't know what your psychology is, but it might be that somebody with a similar story might not have given himself permission to fully feel um, what it was like to be left to her by him. So let's let's talk about covert incest. Um, one, when people reach
0: out to me and say, "Hey, here's this situation I experienced as a child. I feel like it might be what you're talking about." Um, talk about the 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 various ways that covert incest occurs in families and um, some of the hallmarks of it. We've talked about over in- incest, uh, a bit, but you know, let's let's pull that back and, and talk about
1: okay, the covert, yeah, yeah. So, let's give it a definition. So, let's start with what's normal. So, there's a normal this might help your listeners. There's a normal love affair between parents and children. P- children fall in love with their parents, and, p- and parents fall in love with their children in ways that are just Um, just unparalleled right and you know you hear kids all the time say I want to marry mommy and have babies with her or I want to marry daddy you know and you know these people aren't reading Freud these kids these five-year-old children are not reading Freud they're not learning this in Disney this is a hardwired deal it's a biologically driven part of the erotic story and I say erotic in in the broad sense not the orgasmic sense but the early bud of romance really starts with your primary caretakers nobody wants to look back or imagine they they thought their mother or father was attractive and they fell in love with him but at some level that occurred and so clearly when when that occurs oh that's very nice honey that you want to marry me and have babies but i'm married to your daddy and one day you'll find somebody for yourself but that's very sweet right you hold that love affair very delicately you don't reject him you don't wound that boy or that girl but you also don't exploit it so if you hold it gently and you hold it innocently he he or she gets to go off and see somebody in the classroom, Susie or somebody across the way. And say, they have a crush on Susie or maybe the teacher. And so they begin to have their own normal sexual unfolding. Crushes, maybe in adolescence, they begin to explore. I'm not gonna get into the morality of the good and the bad, but the, 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 the path of erotic love sort of unfolds age appropriately it's linked to wanting to attach to somebody. Um, I can play and not feel ashamed, and I can have this be part of my life. That starts with a parent who doesn't exploit that love affair, who doesn't take charge or control of that. Now, let's contrast it with the covert incest story. So your covert incest parent says, "I, I need my needs met, and you love me like nobody's ever loved me. I'm not letting you go you 're going to be my new little boyfriend, and if you try to leave me i 'll guilt you and so i won 't touch you inappropriately, but i 'll create an atmosphere in which you become my surrogate husband because your father 's a shit, and I need you to be the good boy who never leaves me so the The dynamic of this of the relationship takes on the hallmarks. Of now, I can never leave Mommy because I have to be her loyal lover lover, in the general sense of the word, I have to be the surrogate husband, caretaker, uh, or in the case of a daughter, a surrogate wife um, so that and so that relationship now feels icky ooh i I had an innocent love affair with my mother, but now she gets jealous when I have a girlfriend or i see i see she sees me in the street. Or the neighborhood talking to a girl i get home and she gets angry so now we have dynamics of jealousy so we have this incestuous violation the mother is laying claims in the case of a son laying claims where she doesn't belong so there's a sense that my sexuality is not mine anymore my mother owns it she takes charge of it and sometimes as you pointed out those cross a line but you don't need to cross a line to have your sexuality hijacked I, I, I see I hear stories you know ever since I wrote the book in 1991 I can't tell you now thousands of stories <clears throat> in which and now that we see them in the workshop too where you know I have parents saying why don't you just divorce your spouse so we can get on with our life right I have these overt sort of um, declarations of intrusion and jealousy and demand. That's what we mean by covert incest. So the incestuous dynamic is not overt in the sense that I'm crossing a physical boundary. It's built into the storyline of the relationship so that I have to be an extension of her need for a lover rather than me going out into the world and finding my own lover. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. It does make sense. Uh, Do you find that the percentage of fathers versus mothers uh, tends to have more overt incest? You You know, I don't
1: have I don't have numbers for you, but I think in general we see that. But we do see both. You know, um, we do see fathers who make their daughters their surrogate girlfriends or caretakers without touching them. Uh, We certainly have a fair amount of male to female girl sexual violation, uh, including fathers. But we also have mothers who violate their sons and their daughters. Um, it's less reported, um, but it's there. It probably does not, to my knowledge base, and I can't quote you, it is not as frequent, frequently reported as male Uh, abuse of daughters or for that matter, sons, right? Males can abuse either one in terms of the covert, you know, I'm my mother's surrogate husband or wife. We also see daughters playing a surrogate partner to a mother, not just the son. Sometimes
0: the best girlfriend, interested in your growing body. Yeah. That, that one I see a lot with uh, female friends, of mine, um, the absolutely jealousy that they are, you know, perceived to be younger and more attractive and more of a threat to them. It's like once they hit puberty, they become a,
1: a threat, it seems, to that to that mother. Well, they become a competition, too. Right. I think that's what you're reporting, right? Yes. The narcissism of the parent um, becomes more on display at that point. Right that the daughter has been an extension of them and now that the daughter has her own moxie right now it's a threat now you could outshine me right so again we we tend to see a lot of narcissism uh, and not always at the full disorder and you can we can distinguish between the full disorder from traits but we send we tend to see a lot of self-absorption which unfortunately is pretty predominant in the culture these days but um and we also see a great deal of dependency so narcissism and dependency seem to be at the traits of many of these parents who are are extracting loyalty from their children when they shouldn't Mm -hmm. is is there a
0: um are there personality disorders that you see cropping up more than others uh in with
1: the the adult children coming out of these families you mean
0: Uh, No, on the the part of the parent who is being uh, abusive or crossing boundaries.
1: Well, like I said, narcissism and and independency. Yeah, those are the two primary ones that I've seen, where narcissism is low empathy, uh, high valuing of the self. Uh, You become an extension of me and um, what I need. And uh, I don't understand why you're upset with me that I, you know, and demanding from you your your loyalty, right? So they don't they don't narcissistic people who have narcissism to greater or lesser degrees, the the more they have, the less they see you as a separate person, the more they need you to be an audience member in their life to constantly reinforce their fragile sense of self. And um in the case of this covert incest, right, you're my you're my lover boy, my best friend. And so don't go too far because you have to constantly remind me of my value. So that's the narcissistic parents dance. Mm-hmm. The The other sort of version we see is what we call excessive dependency or dependency disorder, where I can't function alone and I don't know how to think by myself and I am in const- I'm, I'm terrified of rejection. And I need constant reassurance. So similar to the narcissist, but but less um, aggressive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm in constant need of somebody always being at by my side because I'm terrified to be alone. So, so I'm not going to let you go, yeah. son or daughter. Right. So uh, those are the two primary.
0: One of the things that I see that just breaks my heart is the parent, whether it's well-meaning or not, says to the child, if I didn't have you in my life, I would kill myself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that before. You're
0: the only thing keeping me
1: alive. Yeah. Boy, that's that's just the wrong thing to say because that really puts the child in a bind. What's the kid supposed to do with it? Right. You know, they got two choices. And um, and if they've already, already been um, victim to a parent's display of helplessness and sorrow, which you're supposed to keep in check, right? You can't if you have a sensitive, empathic son or daughter, the parents' job is to know that. And to realize they can't burden that kid with all their woes or fight it fight all the time in the marital relationship and expect that kid not to absorb it. So the parents have to know who their kids are. And and hold back some of that. So if that kid has been absorbing for years, you know, um, my mother or father's woes and pity um, and sorrow and helplessness, by the time they get that lessons and the mother says, don't leave me, I'm going to kill myself. He's already baked. Right. He's already intertwined in such a way that he can't go anywhere. So you know i I do assessments all the time of these stories uh, with with men and women and and we run these workshops and i am I'm, I'm astounded at the stories I hear in the loss of years and decades of their people's lives that they've given up uh, because they've been afraid if they leave their mother will die or their father will die or um, or that in or that they will right that they will cease to exist right if they somehow disconnect one of the things that Uh,
0: I saw in myself, and I think a lot of other people see, is we we don't have words for something that we know is going on inside of us, especially as adults uh, in that relationship with that parent. What are some physical clues that something might be going on that could... In you in could, the parent or in, in the
1: child when they're around that parent or they anxiety know, anxiety um, uh, some some social awkwardness possible school phobia so I when I, one of my first professional my first professional assignment was working at Children's Hospital in, in Detroit I'm from Michigan. And we saw school phobic kids, the kids weren't afraid of school. They were afraid of what the school represented, which was separation from the parent. So we see phobias, we see fears, we see anxiety. Sometimes we see acting out, but usually these kids are very, usually what we see is very good boys, well behaved boys and girls compliant. They're willing to subject their needs to others. That's trouble so they lose their fight early on that's the primary not the only but the the primary sort of symptom package that we see is this good boy oh he's such a good boy i he's imagine
0: such- you you then see
1: perfectionism perfectionism absolutely and you know good girl and and so, and, and willing to sacrifice needs for others you know, obviously, to some degree we we want to do that as we build relationships with people. We always are exchanging things, <clears throat> but these children, later as adults do that uh with a high degree of currency in exchange with others they it's just it's becomes their core identity is to subjugate the self for others so that's that's a big issue. sometimes we see aggressive hypersexual behaviors uh or aggressive behaviors or acting out behaviors we call it, you know. Uh, getting angry and rebellious, say, at teachers. So if mommy's controlling me, I might, I can't act out with her, but I might displace it at school. So rather than being afraid of school, I might act out at school. I might act out with authority figures. You know, people who try to tell me what to do. Um, so we can see some of that too, but primarily we see anxiety, compliance, too much compliance, too much quote unquote good golden boy or golden girl behavior. So that's a trigger, right? When you see these kids who are way way too compliant, sometimes it's temperamental, right? Some kids are just kind of easygoing and they kind of roll with the flow and we don't call that pathological. But when we see these kids who subjugate themselves and have displays of helplessness um, and a lack of uh, esteem, we get worried.
0: How frequently do you say have a client who fits into this situation and they find the words to then go to the parent and to try to set boundaries and express their needs. How frequently do you find that that parent really takes in what that child is saying and tries to change?
1: Well, you know, so let's remember my, my, um, My sample of people are people who come from very troubled families, right? So I I tend to get a biased sample of the more um, severe cases or more dysfunctional systems. In those more dysfunctional grouping that I see, people coming into my office obviously aren't coming from more normative families, uh, we usually get a lot of pushback from the parents. They don't understand. They get angry. uh, They feel unappreciated. Uh, Many of them will eventually sort of resign themselves. I get this now he or she wants their own space. I'll give it to them. I'm not happy about it, but I want to keep a relationship with them. I'll keep my mouth quiet and try to do my best here. So we get a kind of resigned acceptance. But there are some who retaliate. They, they amputate the relationship with the adult child. They may cut them out of a will. Um, they may never speak to it. So We sometimes get pretty severe stories um what we you know there you have to be careful you can't give recommendations as if they fit to all cases but i'll say it this way for you and your audience emancipation is not um, a co-agreement with your parents it's it's an announcement that i'm a grown man now and if you want a relationship with me it's best to treat me in that way i'm no longer your little boy I'm a grown man now. I want you to see me that way. So that really is the boundary, right? It's a, it's a boundary versus saying, I'm only going to talk to you once a week. Or, I'm only going to talk to you every two weeks. Certainly you can have boundaries around time yeah. and around topics of conversation around money and you should, but that doesn't get the job done. What really gets the job done is I'm on this side of the line now, mom. I'm a grown man. And if you want to stay connected to me you, you want to start thinking about seeing me that way so I'm now what we call differentiated I'm different than you I'm no longer your little golden boy I'm done with that and so we have guys who announce that we, we had a guy leave the workshop we do, and he announced to his mother that he's, I'm now a grown-ass man, and I want you to treat me that way. <laughs> and we heard about their story secondhand, you know, a week later after he left the workshop. I thought, well, oh, that's great. And and to my surprise, what I heard was she indeed got it. And, and she would, and it's to some degree, and we try to teach parents this when we have a chance to, it's in the parents', parents best interest to make the shift. Because then they they can welcome back an adult child in their life now as a co-equal, right. rather than a little boy who takes care of them. So my general recommendation is you you differentiate yourself in front of your parents and say, look, I'm a grown man now. I'm a grown woman. See me that way and treat me that way. Then we'll get along. And if they don't, then it's time for boundaries.
0: And consequences. <laughs> That's I, right. That's I, right. I so often see people who aren't willing, whether it's a parent or a friend who can be toxic or gaslighting, they're not willing to give that person consequences. And, you know, I often say, well, then what is the purpose of boundaries? If, yeah. if, if you just allow that person to constantly violate your boundaries, what's in their interest to ever change? Mm
1: hmm. Mm -hmm, For sure. And that's difficult to do, right? I mean, you, you have to be willing, if you're going to declare this emancipation, you have to understand that there's a certain loss that's going to be inherent in that. You're not the golden boy anymore. And it might mean that you have to stand your ground for a period of time and tolerate a distance and tolerate people being unhappy with you and tolerate that people misunderstand you and not come to the rescue and change who you are in the service of them. So um, it, is, it is difficult to set the boundary and say, look, if you keep talking about dad or complaining about him or comparing me to him, I'm just not going to call for a while. And it, it's a loss. So we, one of the things that we, you have to do in this emancipation process is grieve. It's not the way it's going to be anymore.
0: And it's it is a big grief. It it mm-hmm. for me, it was as if someone died. Mm-hmm. Because the image I had created of my mother as somebody who saw me and loved me mm-hmm. burst. Mm-hmm. And I felt like an untethered astronaut, you know, whose whose line had been clipped. I didn't know up from down. I just knew. I wanted a mommy and I was going to find her anywhere, whether it was a female friend that I would just vomit all my pain onto. And I had to learn boundaries as, as I was trying to fill this loss that I, that I felt in my chest. Do you find that there are people as they face the reality of needing to make a choice and individuate that they feel this uh, trauma, this death, this this deep, profound grief, and and feeling of of being lost.
1: No question, no question, Paul. Um, the more entanglement, the more enmeshment, the more a uh, merge your identity has been with your mother's, or in this case, we say your mother's with you. And the longer that occurs, the more. Painful and falling off a cliff, if, like if, as if it's falling off a cliff that you feel, right? So you're you're disentangling not just the current moment, but these years of identity entanglement in which yourself has not been able to operate separately, mm-hmm. right? And and so if you remember, I said that you know emancipation it goes across developmental lines, and at each stage the kid is supposed to get a little more of his, his or her sea legs, right? And practice leaving mommy's side and coming back to mommy's side, leaving daddy's side, coming back to and making these, these forays into the world that are, are longer and more distant and to where they finally can be on their own. But if you take a, a young adult or an adult, a middle-aged adult, who says, I've got to make the break because I've been spending 30 or 40 years entangled with my parent. Mm-hmm it's it's like falling off a cliff, right? There hasn't been, there's not been a gradual, <clears throat> there, there may be certain resiliency qualities to the adult, you know, maybe they've got some independence, some savviness, some resiliency, but this core sense of self that you're describing has never been completely separate. And when that happens at 40, it's, it feels horrific compared to it happening gradually over time so for sure we we see a lot of that, which makes it difficult to stay in your in your boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's this feeling that I'm gonna collapse myself. Never mind my parent. I might lose myself if I don't run back home. So I, I have grown men who fantasize about moving back into their parents' basement just wow. to be taken care of. Wow. In, in this sort of It's in this this movement that you just described here where they're disentangling. Finally, the core sense of my sense of self, my identity is mine. It's not yours, mom. It's not yours, dad. You know, the famous I always read this this poem before I do my workshops. But it's the Khalil Gibran poem on children. And his his first line is your sons or daughters are not yours. Their life's longing for them for itself. It is such a profound statement. They're not yours, they're life's longing for itself. And so that is the assignment that we each have is to take ownership of moving into the world as our own person, right? Our own personhood. And that means leaving behind mommy and daddy as we knew them in childhood, while we rebuild an adult relationship to them and our family, right? So I just want to remind your listeners Mm -hmm that amputation is not emancipation so cutting off your mother or father and never speaking to them, again, or, or having some boundary where you talk to them for 10 minutes once a year those people aren't necessarily emancipated they're still transferring guilt and inappropriate loyalty and subjugating themselves to partners romantic partners to children to to, to careers that they don't want perhaps they still haven't differentiated themselves or claimed themselves inside. Right. They may have a very rigid boundary with a parent, mm-hmm. but that by itself doesn't guarantee emancipation. So, I, you know, just just so people don't get don't hear us wrong. Amputation is not the same as emancipation. So would it be fair
0: to say it's not the quantity of your interaction with this parent? It's the quality.
1: Absolutely. So I know, I know families and, and adults who have frequent contact with their parents and they're completely separate, right? They're, they don't feel obligated to call them and take care of them. And, and, and those parents um, might say, you know, I'm not going to trouble my son or daughter with my woes. I'm just going to call and see how he or she's doing and, and get excited about their life, right? So I'm going to purposely hold back you know, the fact that I have a, a new ailment in my body, right? That's it's accumulating. Now, there might be a time where I might ask for help, or I might share with them if they ask, but I'm mindful that I'm not going to burden my adult kids. They still need to live their life. Um, so sure. Yeah, we see. It. so frequency of contact, but you're right, it's the quality. So somebody can have frequent contact and be separate. And then somebody could call their parents once every quarter and be completely enmeshed because they can't mm-hmm. get, they feel tethered. That's the phrase we use lately, is that they feel emotionally tethered. So they may not talk to their parent, but they're thinking every day how guilty they feel that they yeah. didn't call their mother. So they're still tethered. So, yeah. so you're correct. Frequency of contact by itself doesn't define separateness per se or enmeshment per se.
0: And... I I would imagine that there are very few people who individuate and don't feel years, even if it's lessening of guilt.
1: Yeah, I think the guilt's always there. You know, um, I think the truth is, is that particularly if this occurred over the course of the majority of your childhood and into your adulthood. These these feelings of obligatory guilt and loyalty, that part of you is already been developed. It isn't going to go away. Right. You just have to create a different assignment within yourself for that part of yourself. Right. That, those guilty feelings. So you have to ask, yourself, why am I feeling guilty? Is that really relevant here? And is it really necessary? Have I am I somehow responsible for this? And usually the answer is no. Mm -hmm. so you're right this is a one day at a time just like an addiction you have to one day at a time practice your emancipation I'm a free man and woman today I'm under no obligatory assignment to please you just because you want it now I might want to and and just for the record I'm also not encouraging that we throw obligatory love under the bus either. Right. I mean, all relationships have a degree of obligatory love in them. Right. We, we kind of show up for people we care about because we care about them. We may or may not feel like we want to sometimes. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the man or woman who's had these covertly incestuous enmeshed relationships, they need to first feel free. I got to get on the other side of this emancipation line. I'm my own man, my own woman. My loyalty is to me, my partner, my family, my career, and then my mother and father. They come down the list. Would
0: it be fair to say that as somebody begins to emancipate themselves, when they do have contact with their parent, they feel less dread?
1: I think so. I think that's exactly right. I think that, you know, they feel more in their adult self. They feel less prone to to taking on the guilty, helpless, you know, why haven't you called me sooner messages? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you called. Uh, you haven't called me in three weeks now. Honey, why haven't you called me more, right? So they still may get those messages coming across the phone. Right. But they're less prone to take them on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Bob, you know I still love you. And so how are you doing today? And how's the weather? And how about our favorite baseball team, right? You just don't dance with her. You yeah. just don't dance with her. Some you of the stay, weather and sports. No longer news that doesn't right. get in there. Weather and sports only. Sometimes not even sports now, people are fighting in the stands. So um, you, we're, we're reduced to weather. So pretty. soon, that's going to be a problem too. Yeah. But you keep you keep it light. You don't do the dance with her. Uh,
0: a couple of things that I found that helped me uh, was to not wait. And, and this could be friends who can be a bit narcissistic and training is not wait for them to want to hang up on the phone yeah to return a phone call when i'm on my way somewhere so that i have a place to be so that i know the phone call is going to be limited to to 5 I, I, minutes
1: yeah
0: and to going into any situation to be willing should it be necessary to hang up or leave the room, even if it means, you know, taking a an Uber home because that person drove me. If I'm not willing to do those things, I will feel cornered and I will feel dread.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that you're taking good care of that part of you that has felt trapped and encased uh, with a demand from others that you don't necessarily want to meet. And I think that what you're describing is the freedom to choose to be on your own, as opposed to the backdoor exit, which is different. A backdoor exit is a secret exit, right? I'll go off and have an affair or something where where you're describing is a thoughtful strategy that should the need arise. You can take care of yourself and you've made a contract with yourself. um, that, That helps that part of you that felt trapped to feel freer to make commitments and move into experiences with people. So, I mean, again, I'm not talking for sure, you, but sure, what, sure. You're, what you're describing seems like that's the case here. And I, I think that's a great strategy. Because um, a lot of people who have come from these backgrounds where the parent has suffocated them or meshed them or uh, submerged them in their identities, they have trouble with commitments. Mm-hmm. And that, the reason they have trouble with commitments is they're afraid they're going to get stuck again. So they sometimes let decades of their life go by without meaningful commitments because they don't dare get trapped again. So I like what you're proposing. Uh,
0: I I, I imagine you, excuse me, also find people in relationships where they repeat the rescuing behavior. And even though there may be emotional distance and a lack of intimacy in that relationship, they fool themselves into thinking they're committed just because they're still living with that person. But they, you know, they, they, find it draining. They're lost in fantasy about some other life, but they take the option off the table of getting out of that relationship because they're afraid it's going to destroy them or fear of being alone or I don't deserve better. Is that something that you see frequently?
1: Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, one one of one of uh, some colleagues of mine wrote a book on um, uh couples and they had a chapter in their uh, john and linda friel wrote a book uh, the seven things happy couples do and they had a chapter called the willingness to divorce and it throws everybody for a loop what do you what are you saying you want us to divorce and what what they were saying in the chapter which i thought was right on is that i'm here by choice and you, you and i have to keep keep each other interested and we have to treat each other well enough at the time and not hurt each other Um, uh, certainly not consciously, um, so that we have reason to stay, because I have the right to leave if I need to. And what they were saying is that couples who are willing to end it all have the most robust relationships. So it's not a threat, it's a position. And I agree. I I wondered if it would be okay before we we close here in a minute, if I might be able to share briefly about um, the workshops I do, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so you know, I I uh, and and I don't I'm not trying to market them per se, other than I I'm the only one out there doing them, but that I know of. Um, but you know, ha- having written the book "Silently Seduced" and then later when he's married to Mom, which was a book specifically about men and their mothers, also a chapter in there about women, I realized that a lot of these men were 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 getting stuck even in individual therapy that they, they weren't making the progress, and so I put together a a sort of a cocooning workshop that we now do online sometimes in person when the pandemic allows and um where we kind of shift this emotionally trapped feeling into a sense of freedom and i, I just love these things so if people i have you know um information on the uh, umbrella website called overcoming if people want to see overcoming com.
0: Uh I had a, a therapist uh who she was a CSAT a certified sex addiction therapist and she recommended your workshop uh to me and I wasn't ready for it well, at that at that point because uh I imagine you see this a lot people are like nope I've drilled as deep as I'm ready to go at least right now, I'm not I'm not ready to open that other door.
1: Well, should you decide otherwise, we, we walk with with uh, supportive arms. And and there's something powerful when you're sitting in a group of other in this case, men, when there's seven, six, seven other guys and they're telling the same story. It's stunning. Yeah. It's stunning. The, the shared variance of problems and symptoms are about 95 percent. It's like somebody has been following. So I was just I'm, I'm doing one in person this year, only one in person. So I'll just, you know, tip my hat over to you. And, and when and, is uh, that? The one in person is in June sometimes. So check. I don't have in Michigan. It. Yeah, Michigan. Okay. And then we have Zoom options, too. They're a little yeah. different, but they work. Well, listen, I, you know, feel free to check back with me about that. I, uh, I, will.
0: I will. I know you have an appointment to uh, to get to. So yeah. I just I. I feel like I can't put in words how grateful I am for you and the work that you do. So that that's as, as I'll leave it at that.
1: Well, that's no, I, I, I get that. I, I feel that from you. And I'm glad that you have found some freedom, Paul, and you're welcome. And uh, it's it's why I wrote the book is 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 that hopefully it would affect people's lives in the way it has you. So I'm I'm grateful that it has for you. So, yeah, and really feel free to reach out to me. I will. Um, and if there's anything I can do to kind of coach you along into the workshop. If you think you need it, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. Okay? All right. Thanks, Doc. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.
0: Oh, so grateful to have gotten to talk to him. Definitely on my bucket list of, uh, of guests. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Let's dive into some surveys. This is uh, from the Shame and Secrets survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Fall Time. She identifies as uh, bisexual. Uh, She says, I think I'm bisexual because I only fantasize about women, but I've never had sex with a woman. Only kisses, but I've only considered myself in love with men. Uh, She's in her 30s, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Never been sexually abused, been emotionally abused uh, for the, as long as, and speaking of uh, covert incest, for the longest, uh, as long as I can remember, I've been my mom's best friend and confidant from about the age of 10 when she decided she would leave my dad, who I worshipped, She started sleeping in my room at night after my younger brothers went to bed, telling me everything wrong with their marriage, as well as mild sexual things about boyfriends of hers. Nothing extremely graphic, but things you would confide in a girlfriend or sister. She's never had friends and has remarked over the years that her kids are her best friends. That is, to me, always such a red flag when somebody says that. Um she's extremely hard on me and her husband, the two closest to her, taking a lot of bottled-up aggression out on both of us. I love my mom intensely and can't stand when she is upset at me, mostly because she tries to make my life hell when I even slightly disagree with her, so I mostly never tell her my true feelings any positive experiences with abusers. I love her very much and she helps me by watching my kids while I work. She's wonderful with small children and I feel guilty and like I'm making too big of a deal out of the things when I have any negative feelings about her. Darkest thoughts. I wish sometimes that my life were different and that I never had kids so that I wouldn't be tied down to anything or anyone and I could just disappear. I think sometimes that I wish I hadn't had them because I worry that I will die youngish like my father and they will grow up without a mom. I fear that my husband is only with me because of the kids and he would have left already if we didn't. Although I consider our marriage mostly happy. I worry that he has cheated on me or he will. Darkest secrets. I cheated on my husband, then boyfriend, when we were dating. I did it with my best friend's brother who I've known for a long time. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being with women or a man and a woman. It feels weird to put it into words. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mom how she made me feel growing up, that she left me alone when I needed her after my dad's passing. I would like to tell my dad I'm sorry for being a dumb fucking teenager when he died, not spending his last few months with him like I should have. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could com- communicate with my husband better without judgment and that he would just listen and not try to fix me and tell me choices, tell me my choices, uh, put me in these situations. How do you feel after writing these things down? Kind Weird but kind of therapeutic. Yeah, it's amazing when we have to put things into sentences, how, I don't know, our, our brain just suddenly makes connections, but um, you know, I I relate very much to having lived with that feeling of fear of being responsible for other people's emotions, and it's a terrible way to go through the world. Um, Not only feeling like you're responsible for other people's feelings but that your feelings aren't worthy of being discussed or fighting for to have them respected. This is from the love survey filled out by Betty and she writes, I love the little ways my partner and I mesh living together. I love that he cooks dinner and makes sure I eat vegetables and then I get to bake and feed him delicious cookies and cakes I love that I take the dogs out in the morning when he's too sleepy to get up and that he takes them out in the evening as I'm falling asleep on the couch. I love that we have a similar taste in interior decorating which makes it so fun to renovate our home. I love in the mornings when he asks me if I need to pee before he takes his morning poop. I love that we have different artistic skills but we both appreciate each other's work. I love binge watching Star Trek over and over together. I love that I've been working hard at being a good partner and it feels like it's paying off. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. This is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself my cats are more awesome than your cats. That's a pretty big claim, lady. You better be willing to back that shit up. Uh, She... identifies uh, as other. She doesn't specify in terms of uh, uh, gay, straight, or bisexual, or asexual. She's in her 30s, says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. She says some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. She doesn't uh, specify what happened. Uh, She's been physically abused and emotionally abused, and I'm just going to give you some of the highlights slash lowlights from her her relationship with her father, Uh, him smoking a bong uh, when I was a child on his lap. Um, His other go-to was lock me in a room by myself for hours, saying I should take a nap so he could go off and get high. Um being locked in the cab of my father's truck for 8 hour work days because we had visitation time he had visitation time with me but couldn't afford to or wouldn't get a babysitter while he worked on a construction site so he just left me in his truck all day instead my father was also prone to major bouts of un- unadulterated unprovoked rage Uh, He'd lose it if the house wasn't as clean as he wanted it. If something didn't work the first time or if he was displeased in some way that no one could have predicted, this would send him into a blind rage where he would punch walls and throw items through things, so many holes and doors and walls at his apartments, and scream at whoever had angered him as well as letting out guttural howls of rage. Um... And then this is one of the reasons I wanted to read this survey. Any positive experiences? And this just highlights how complex people can be. Um, Any positive experiences with the abusers? And does that complicate your feelings? Um, Yes, as a kid, I loved my father, and I missed him so much when he was not around. I'd wait out on the front lawn all afternoon on the days he was coming to pick me up, like a scene out of a movie. He used to play the banjo, and his song for me was You Are My Sunshine. I legitimately cannot hear that song without bawling my eyes out. It represents everything I should have had, needed, and can't have. A loving, supportive dad who cares. No strings attached. Wait, see what I did there? And isn't scary to be around. My father's laugh is the weirdest, goofiest-sounding laugh I've ever heard in my life, and I miss it. That laugh made everyone else around him laugh, or at least break into a grin. Although he is a toxic, mean, angry person, my father could also be very generous. He took a lot of pride in being a provider, although he often would, quote, provide resources, money, food, space, a vehicle to borrow, instead of affection and love, and expect absolute obedience as the only acceptable repayment. Every favor came with strings attached. Um, After all, damn that banjo reference to hell. Darkest Thoughts. I want bad things to happen to the people closest to me so I can A, get away from them and my responsibility slash obligation to them, and B, get sympathy and attention for it. For instance, I've often hoped my mother would die so I wouldn't have to take care of her when she becomes unable to care for herself. I also frequently wish I had never been born. I resent my parents, especially my mother, for being so selfish as to have a child they weren't capable of raising properly. I resent that they didn't stop to consider how shitty being raised in complete poverty would be. I know the adversity I experienced has given me a maturity and insight that a lot of people may never have, but still, fuck them for having me and putting me through that shit. The assholes. Darkest Secrets. I have no idea why I did this, but when I was really young, maybe like six, I would go into my mom's bedroom and pee on the floor beside her bed. There was no malice or intent behind it other than I just wanted to. She blamed it on the cat and would rub the cat's face in it. No wonder the cat hated me. I have never told her this and probably never will, even though at this point it's more funny than anything. When I was 22, I was in a sexual relationship with a married man. I thought I loved him, but I was really being manipulated and actually loved my, quote, reflection that he showed me. Excessive compliments I wasn't used to receiving, etc. The worst part, his wife had helped me out with a tough situation beforehand, and she had a fucking heart condition, pacemaker, medications, risk of death at any moment, the whole nine yards. What a selfish fucking asshole I was. I don't exactly go advertising what happened, but I am sure she found out. She unfriended me on Facebook shortly after I moved away from town. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, threesomes, two guys, one girl, especially if it starts off with the two guys having sex with each other, then including the girl slash me. Orgies, where there's so much going on that I can kind of be invisible and and join in at random if that makes sense. In my fantasies, everyone's STI screenings are up-to-date and negative, and every guy has a vasectomy, so I can't get pregnant. I don't feel ashamed of it. Maybe a little sad, because it's a bit unrealistic, and I don't know if I can ever overcome my anxiety enough to feel comfortable in a real-life version, version of my fantasy. Worrying about pregnancy, disease, and general body image issue basically kills my libido. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my boyfriend, I love you, but I'm not attracted to you, and I never really was. We've been together for eight years, and I haven't had sex for over five of them. I really don't know why he stays with me, and I wouldn't blame him if he cheats. Those words are the elephant in the room, and if I say them, I fear it will, quote, break the spell, and I will lose the only stable, caring person in my life. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I wouldn't get sucked into depression and lose all momentum and progress I've made in my life in terms of health and career. I wish I could stand up to people that use me as a doormat. I wish I could be kinder to the people I care about and more of a bitch to the strangers and acquaintances that deserve to be put in their place. Boy, isn't that fucking true? Why is it that, you know, that that cliche, we we hurt the ones we love, Um, that was so true earlier earlier in my life have you shared these things with others i told a therapist she agreed with me that while my relationship isn't in a great place that it's a neutral pot it's a neutral positive in my life and there are more important issues to work on i.e depression before tackling the elephant in the room how do you feel after writing these things down i don't feel anything except for getting a bit choked up at you are my sunshine which is a calm common problem for me i think i've been emotionally numb for a long time that must be a survival mechanism or something because i came into this world a hypersensitive person and as an adult i am mostly numb and neutral on my quote good days thank you thank you for sharing that i related to a lot of uh the feelings that that you share in terms of the the numbness and um I've gone through periods where my libido—it just feels like it, it left, and uh, it's—I think a lot of times it can be related to uh, to depression. This is from the voice in your head survey filled out by Tracy, and she writes uh, to the question, "What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself?" She writes. Disregarding the negative stuff, which doesn't deserve the power to be written out, here are some of the things that help me, that I'm worth changing the status quo for, that the screaming, angry little kid inside me needs care, not ignoring, that my gooey inner mess is still worth loving, that my love isn't one-sided and I'm worth being loved by others. Fucking high five, high six. That is awesome. That is awesome. If, if if you can get to a place where you can genuinely say that to yourself and not roll your eyes in the mirror, you have won the lottery. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, fooled out by a guy who calls himself okay, probably not. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, says he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I have two older brothers. When I was three or four, I was taking a bath with brother one. Brother two had a friend over and brought him into the bathroom where brother one had me perform oral on him as a joke. He was six or seven at the time, so I don't think there were sexual feelings behind it. It was probably just little boys being dirty. He says he's never been physically abused, but he's been emotionally abused. I didn't realize it at the time, but after entering therapy, I've learned that what I thought was the status quo mother-son relationship was actually emotional abuse. Lots of manipulation and blame that I didn't realize I had to shoulder. And he experiences with abusers. Sure, she's my mom. I'm very conflicted as I now try to manage a relationship with her and my wife whom she has told me she doesn't want me to be married to. Darkest thoughts. I wonder if I will be able to maintain my marriage. I worry that my depression and anxiety will overpower our love and that she will no longer have the wherewithal to handle my illness in me. It often feels like it would be better to just go into a hospital or something and be relieved of all the responsibility of being a functional member of society. Darkest Secrets. I jerked off while driving recently. I used a porno on my phone to get me most of the way there, and the deed was done quickly once I undid my pants. I hope as you were coming, you hit the hazards. You got to let people know. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I like the sleep porn where men have sex with women who pretend they're asleep. Writing that down makes me feel creepy and unkind. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want my wife to understand that I can't be her everything. She needs to find fulfillment in life that doesn't weigh me down. I want the same thing for myself. Um, You know what? Maybe you could suggest that both you guys read uh, Codependent, no more, and then talk about it. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish my depression would just go away. I'm terrified. I will think of myself as a patient or in recovery for the rest of my life. I just want to exist. Have you shared these things with others? No, it wouldn't do any good. How do you feel after writing these things down? Desperate. Well, you know, there's a saying in recovery, uh, the gift of desperation, because sometimes... In a state of desperation, we will finally ask for help or reach out to someone to just share what we're feeling, to to say, I don't know how to do this, or I'm afraid I'm going to die, or I'm afraid I'm going to kill myself. And maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for you to to open up to somebody. I hope you do. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, your crazy aunt, And she writes, I love when I'm feeling like shit and my cat sleeps, quote, by my side, unquote, the whole night on his pillow behind my head. I wake up to his warmth and when he senses I'm awake, he comes on my chest and purrs so fucking loud. I love it. Hmm. I love my girlfriend, Christina, has a cat named Pablo. And um, I love he loves to have his, his head scratched really vigorously and he'll just start purring so fucking loudly. And I always feel like, I don't know, it's like a little trophy that you're loving on an animal, uh, correctly when they just, cause cats can be so hard to connect to sometimes. They're so, uh, I don't know, finicky. Is that the right word? This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Little One. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, says she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. Uh, I was five and still living with my birth mom. She was severely bipolar and going in and out of mental institutions leaving me to go in and out of foster care. We moved into a new apartment complex, and she soon fell into a deep depression. Unable to get out of bed, let alone take care of me, I was left to my own devices. I met some neighbor boys outside. They must have been around 12 or 13. They invited me to come play in a tent they had set up out behind the apartment complex, desperately wanting to be included in anything at that point, not to mention the fact that I was Completely naive to the fact that this probably wasn't safe for me, I eagerly followed. I remember going in. I can even remember the exact outfit I was wearing. I remember them telling me to lie still and be quiet. I closed my eyes, and then my memory goes black. I know something sexual happened, but I can't remember the specifics. I ended up being given up for adoption soon after that, probably because I began to act out in ways that my already ill-equipped mother just couldn't handle. I never told anyone about what happened to me because I thought I would be given away again. I held on to this secret for the next 15 years until, after turning to alcohol and drug use in my late teens and realizing I needed help to quit, I finally opened up to my adoptive mother about what happened to me before I, w- before I was adopted. Her response, I don't know if I can trust you about what happened because you're a drug addict. Ten plus years later, the pain of hearing her response hurts me a million times more than any of the pain I ever dealt with from the initial experience in that tent. Darkest Thoughts I fantasize about killing myself more often than I think is healthy. The thought of not existing anymore brings a sense of calm that nothing but maybe a benzodiazepine can rival. I don't know what I was thinking about yesterday. That Oh, I think I got a text message from a friend of mine named Eddie. And for some reason, I started thinking of the Eddie Aikau um, uh, tournament that they have in Hawaii. is named after a guy named Eddie Aikau, who was just like a hero of heroes on the uh, island of Oahu. And he died trying to go save somebody out at sea. He paddled out and was never seen again. And of course, my mind latched onto what would that be like? Did did he die? You know, just sunburned, dying of thirst? Did he? Did sharks get him? did he fall off his board and then I'm down the rabbit hole of what would i do well i wouldn't want to linger so for the next 10 minutes i'm imagining how i'm going to kill myself floating at sea how i'm going to how far down i'm going to need to go and hold my breath so that even if my body responds and i start to try to breathe again there won't be enough time to make it to the surface, and I'll inhale water. And how long would I feel that pain? Would I immediately in there? I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? It all started with just seeing my friend Eddie on my on my phone messages. Uh, Darkest Secrets. After writing a few fourth steps, I no longer hold on to those deep dark secrets that I carried for so many years. Things like stealing money from my mom and many other people to buy dope and cheating on my ex with his best friend while in a blackout. Too bad that simply letting these things out isn't enough to keep me sober. On the bright side, I get to do another fourth step as I come back from this relapse and maybe, maybe I'll tap into something so deep and dark that I can't even remember it as I sit here and type this. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Is it sad that the sexual fantasy that turns me on the most is to simply be with a man that loves and adores me? I feel so lame that that is my thing, but nothing gets me more turned on than knowing I'm the only woman he wants. You are a perverted monster, and I cast you to hell. that is so beautiful it's funny anytime anybody shares what you share they always make fun of themselves like it's so lame and and it's it's so beautiful what if anything do you wish for i wish i could get and stay clean and stay that way without missing heroin like i missed my mom after she gave me away Have you shared these things with others? No, because what's the point? Why spread my negativity to others? Well, how about because you're a human being that deserves love and compassion and to have your pain and your struggle witnessed and to allow people to help you so that you can feel better and maybe you can even help other people. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm so numb right now in general that I don't feel any differently from before I started writing. However, when I do get clean again, I'm hoping that I can finally, finally let go of all of this shit once and for all and move on with my life and not let it continue to anchor me back to this life of active addiction. Your survey really, really moved me. I mean, the stuff that you shared about going into foster care and that thing that your adoptive mother said to you. Oh, just picturing that poor girl, you know, after you were traumatized in that tent and acting out, you know, it just, it it breaks my heart that that might have been the acting out you just expressing that pain because there was n- you didn't know how to express it any other way and that that's what put you into foster care um and the fact that you're struggling to stay sober if you're listening to this uh, i'm just sending you sending you some love this is a happy moment filled out by crow's feet and uh she writes, I run the men's NCAA basketball pool for my office. After every round, I send a company email with interesting game stats, championship info, and our updated leaderboard. Sometimes my coworkers or the company executives will compliment me on my writing and thank, thank me for making the emails so funny. They have no idea that I write short stories, poetry, and one act plays on the side sometimes when i seem really hard at work at my desk i'm actually editing a short story that i'm hoping to submit to a literary magazine they have no clue but they also have no clue how much their compliments mean to me i've considered myself a writer since i was a child but only in secret because my parents had a loathsome habit of squashing my dreams tell me no or telling me how i would fail I've only recently started sharing my writing and actually getting uh, some publishing credits. So a few people in my office complimenting my goofball emails about our $5 betting pool honestly means a lot to me. They like me, and they like my writing. Incredible. Ah, That is awesome. That is awesome. And finally, these are some loves filled out by Visage. And they write, I love the view from my window overlooking a big part of the city. I like the feeling that I am above or distant from all the noise, dirt, hustle, and people of the city. I love stitching. Not only do I get to create something beautiful, having a repetitive activity helps me relax and zone out of constant hyper-awareness and into a space where time doesn't really exist so I get to do what I like for however long I want to. I love my parents and my sisters. I love spending time with them. I love how safe I feel with them now. I love how trusting and vulnerable I can be with them, knowing they will support me no matter what I am going through. I love how strong I am, even if it's hard to believe sometimes. I love how, despite the tough things I've been through, I was and will always be able to protect myself somehow. I love how aware I've become of that. I love how I talk to myself sometimes. I love how I unexpectedly hype myself up for no apparent reason, only to realize shortly after the reason is that I actually love myself enough to do that. I love the short but intense moments where I'm able to connect with the child and the teenager I was. I love how compassionate I can be with the person I was back then. So hmm. So awesome. So awesome. It's such a hard place to get to, such a hard place to get to. But yeah, well man, when well, we can have those moments where we're like, you know, what? I'm enough. I do enough. I have enough. My life isn't one big fuck up. Sure, I've made mistakes, but yeah, that's a great feeling when when we can we can get glimpses of that. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you're out there and you're you're struggling. Say it every week, and I mean it every fucking week. You are not alone. You are not alone. Help is out there. That's just a matter of getting up the nerve to open up to somebody, or you know, check out a support group, or try therapy, or talk to a trusted friend. And uh, yeah, you're not alone. And thanks for listening.